Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Hello again. Come on in. Welcome to the nook, to the walls, books, dust, images, shadows. It's Friday again. It's near midnight. Come on in. Snow's awful, isn't it? No, that's a test. Snow is wondrous. The streets silent, empty, eerie when snows come and everyone stays indoors. And, of course, there's always the chance the lights will go out. It's okay. It's late. I've got candles. They're already lit. I hope you enjoyed last week's all-woman-narrated show, by the way. Tonight, it's boys' voices again, but our two tales, our two central tales, are by women. Anna Taborska was born in London went for a while to a posh school, studied experimental psychology at Oxford, and, like all psych majors do, went into public relations, uh, and journalism, advertising. And thank goodness she threw all that over and became a filmmaker and writer of such horrific things as Little Pig, first published in the eighth black book of horror, 
In 2011, Little Pig was picked for the anthology The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 4. The screen adaptation of Little Pig was a finalist, by the way, for the 2009 Shriekfest screenplay competition. Anna's films include The Rain Has Stopped, that won two awards at the British Film Festival, Los Angeles 2009, The Sin, Ella, My Uprising, and A Fragment of Being. Her feature-length screenplays include Chainsaw, The Camp, and Pizza Man. Tonight, we're going to hear Halloween Lights. This was first published in And Now the Nightmare Begins, the horror zine. In 2010. And, well, as Marty DeBerge says, enough of my yakking. Halloween Lights by Anna Taborski. Where am I? The dark road, the bushes and trees on either side, shrouded in mist, all look the same. I strain my eyes, searching the night for something familiar, something I can grasp. Then the road bends slightly, dips a little, and that's when I see the light. It has a warm orange glow, and I know that I must reach it. If I reach the light, everything will be fine. I stagger through the mist, trying to remember what happened. A cold wind tugs at the branches of the trees and scatters the autumn leaves. I sense movement behind me and spin around, but see nothing. I hurry towards the light, confused as it fragments into a thousand glimmering specks dancing on the horizon. How long have I been walking? The leaves crunch beneath my feet as I hasten along the side of the road— Then a twig snaps behind me. I stop abruptly and hear a leaf rustle before silence falls. I look round. Is that a shadow? A darker shade of black against the night? I step up my pace, desperate now to reach the light. Walking, I hear sounds behind me. When I stop, they stop. When I move forward, they start up again. I hurry on. Sure, I feel eyes burning into my back. I break into a run, not slowing until I reach the edge of town. As I head towards the houses, I see the source of the points of light. Not what I expected. They shimmer in a hundred carved pumpkins, orange teeth casting strange dark shapes on the wood of porches and the gray wetness of paving stone. The shadow behind me forgotten. I wonder at the intricate forms of dark and light dancing before my eyes. Not sure now which way to go. Like a moth that believes itself soaring towards the moon only to find itself trapped in a house full of dusty light bulbs. I pause a while, unsure what to do next. I cringe as a shriek pierces the night and footsteps grow and echo in my ears. Excited voices are coming closer. I cower behind a tree, uncertain. The trick-or-treaters pass and I breathe easy. I move on and hear that crunch of trampled leaves behind me. The shadow. How could I have forgotten the shadow? I scour the street and think I see movement in the bushes to the right. I move off fast. More youths approach. I look for somewhere to hide, but it's too late. They're upon me, laughing and shouting, Nice costume! I lower my eyes and keep moving. They pass by, staring. From all around, the twinkling lights distract me once more, and my mind wanders. I can't remember how I got here. I recall walking along the side of the road, with trees and bushes on either side. 
I close my eyes for a moment and try to see with my mind's eye glimpses of road, of trees and bushes, but they rush by so quickly. I'm not walking. I'm driving, of course, my car. The 69 Chevy convertible that I lovingly restored with my own hands, smoothing every screw, every piece of metal into its rightful place. It took me five years of weekends to turn the rusted hulk into a thing of beauty, its cerulean blue and white more worthy of an angel than of an ungainly, unspecial man like me. Where is my car? Now I remember. I had to leave my car behind. So that's what I'm doing. I'm looking for a phone to get some help out to my car. My mobile is gone. I must have lost it getting out of the Chevy. I can't remember. I must focus. I can't be standing here in the middle of the road. A scream brings me out of my reverie, and I look down at a whimpering child dressed as a ghost. Its face is pale as the sheet that's draped over its body. It drops the plastic jack-o'-lantern it is carrying and wails at me, its body trembling. I reach down to comfort it, but the child's mother pulls it away, cursing me loudly. Two teenage boys and a girl run past. The girl is wearing small red devil's horns. She reminds me of someone. Someone I loved or love still. Someone I should remember. Broken images of a woman's smile form in my mind, of bright green eyes and a wisp of dark blonde hair blowing in the wind as fields and trees stream by behind her. I struggle to put the shattered pieces together, but the boy's shouting dispels the fledgling vision, and plastic severed limbs are waved in front of my face before the teens disappear down a side street. What am I doing? A cat hisses at me from across the street, and I move on. Where am I going? Oh, yes, I'm going to find a house. So many to choose from. And ring a doorbell. And then what? I'm ringing a doorbell, but the sound of movement inside makes me panic. I can't remember what it was I wanted. I run behind the house and listen as the homeowner looks up and down the street and says, Hello? Anybody there? before going back in and locking the door. I grasp desperately at bits of thoughts. I search my mind for what I'm meant to be doing, for where I'm meant to be, but all around me the lights flicker and purr, and pumpkin eyes are mesmerizing, disorientating. Where am I? I remember. My car. I need to call a garage to get my Chevy off the side of the road and get it fixed so that I can drive to the girl with dark blonde hair and green eyes. Alice. Alice is waiting for me at her parents' house. We're supposed to see a double bill at the local cinema, Halloween and Friday the 13th, or is it the evil dead and the fog? I struggle with the mist that's rising before me, getting into my eyes and obscuring the lights. What am I doing? Focus. Oh, yes. I need to find a house and ring a doorbell. I need to phone a garage and get the Chevy fixed so I can take Alice to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or is it The Exorcist? I concentrate hard and push the mist away. I walk to the house with the largest number of pumpkins lining the steps. Here, the mist is weakest. The lights are fighting it, keeping it at bay. I ring the doorbell. The woman's smile fades. She looks startled, but then she smiles again. Your costume, she tells me, it's very gruesome. And aren't you a little old to be trick-or-treating? 
I open my mouth to speak, but I forget what it is that I want to say. I rack my brain. Alice. Alice. The woman turns away. A tear runs down my cheek. The woman returns, holding a box of chocolates. I can't recall. I raise my hand, pleading for patience, pleading for her to wait while I remember, pleading for help. The woman's face changes. What's that smell? A distressed grimace distorts her mouth. The box slips from her hand and chocolates fall in all directions. She's staring at my extended hand and then she starts to scream. I follow the woman's gaze. My hand has burst into flames, orange and yellow, licking up my arm. I look down at my body. I'm a mass of open wounds and charred flesh. Still, I burn. The mist thickens before my eyes until I no longer see the screaming woman. A wind starts to blow, whipping the mist into a spinning, howling vortex. Cold arms envelop me, holding me steady, strangely soothing against my burning skin. The shadow is whispering in my ear, telling me not to scream, telling me that nerve endings have burnt away and it doesn't really hurt. Hush now. It won't be much longer. I hurtle through the mist. The wind howls a crescendo and stops suddenly. There is a jolt. My muscles spasm, like that second between sleeping and waking, when you think you've been falling, but when you finally crash, it's into your own soft, familiar bed, and you never really fell at all. The mist clears. For the briefest moment, all is still. And then the burning begins again. I'm in my Chevy, speared to my seat by blackened metal. My hand burns on the steering wheel. My body burns in my seat. My world is flame. I open my mouth to scream, but the shadow's words resound in my ears. I look up and see it watching me through the windscreen. Behind it there is light. And not the distracting orange glow that led me astray, but brilliant white light. Light that I long for more than anything in the world. Anything except, perhaps, Alice. Thanks for that, Anna. And thanks, Nathan Lowell. Great work again. Nathan is a writer, narrator, all-around good guy. He read B.C. Bell's How Pappy Got Five Acres Back and Calvin Stayed on the Farm. That's long, long ago, show four here at Tales to Terrify. People who know him from podcasting might not know that he's a teacher. Uh, listeners who know him from the golden age of the solar clipper might not know about Tales from the Lamas Woods. He's all of that, teacher, writer, an expert in web accessibility, or, well, you get the idea. Stop by at NathanLowell.org or click on the link. Oh, by the way, Anna tells the story about having first been caught reading horror at age 10 when a teacher at that posh boarding school saw her reading during lunch. Impressed that she was at her desk studying and not with the others in the playground during the break, the teacher took a closer look. 
found Anna's science book hiding Guyanne Smith's Night of the Crabs. Well, it was her playtime. Teach probably worried that she'd give herself screamy dreams. You can visit Anna at her blog, 52 Stitches, by clicking the link below. That's funny, you know, how the world tries to protect children from so much that will finally define them. Folk tales that evolve over generations, centuries, as cultural accretions to instruct and warn, become diluted, made sweet enough to desert upon, and, and lose their value as a result. Still, we find ways to scare ourselves, and later in life we return in our hearts and minds to those things that scared hell into us, the nightmares that we survived. How now I embrace those dark dreams in the shadows in the corner of my room at night. How terrified I was of the dragon that I knew lived between my bed and the wall, and how that critter... That critter is still there, still waiting for me all these decades, my old, old friend, a big brother I survived. Here, listen to this. The Curse by Lawrence Santoro Yes, we sometimes saw them, days, out of doors, but they were the night. They, the witches whose dominion at the alley's bend was absolute. They, the ancient sisters of our street, towered behind their walls of sun-starved roses, viney streams thriving down, cascading over thorny heights. Sometimes we saw them days, walking posts through razor grass from poison bush to prickle tree, we saw them lumping down their back porch steps when lured by us, their hunters, drawn forth by the things we'd lost or tossed by pitch or bat or catapult in their, their yard. They'd wade the grass and shadows ankle-deep in anger. They'd bend, stretch out their hands to see with finger sight, then bring forth, hold up, and bathe our bait in the moonlight of their eyes and roll it round their parchment paws, touching, tapping, smoothing, as they considered in silent conference what they might do to those boys, those girls, the hunters in the alley. Us, when taken. We knew that long before us they were there waiting for us, snooping at the world's creation through their curtain web and window haze, peering down their noses, waiting. They saw us coming, yes, a trillion summer days away and more, and they waited, scarcely breathing, heartbeat after heartbeat, until hearts and breath had blended, slowed, slowed, then stopped. Let's go look, Missy said one blue and summer evening, when the day had skidded off their slated roof and drained to earth along their walls, when the shadows of their timeless house had cellared out to fill their yard, then all the alley, then all the town, then all the world with night. That summer evening, then, a dare from Missy or Trissy, one of the magpie girls. 
And so we did. And easing thorns aside, we climbed the tendril fall, breached the fence, and trekked their prairie yard, tripping over shadows to slip between the moonlight and the dew, to slither to the breathing brick of the body-warm house. Then Terry and I, on magpie backs, chinned the sill and hung by fingertips to peer through dust and our reflections and spied a tapest land where peacocks flashed in frozen flight, lions reared and hand-stitched, needled hush against the hunter's tangled pikes and spears, amidst the flares of horses' nostrils and silent hounds of night, baying, eternal, mute, unmoving, there. "'What do you see?' Magpie Missy whispered up. "'Some drapes with pictures, a clock, old stuff, a piano, a harp, a corpse.' A Davenport, some chairs, feathers in a vase, a shrinking head. Maybe they're dead, their rotten bodies somewhere upstairs in bed, Davy, I think it was, that said. Or in the attic, making curses up, or down below the stairs, stirring bugs and spiders into juice. Well, anything else? Just night, we said, and ourselves in the glass. And suddenly their eyes... White, round, and marbled, one face, then the other, open mouths, dusty tongues, writhing, teeth-clacking jaws working at us as we tumbled off the magpies' backs, rolled down the weeds, and shredded ourselves in thorns over rusty, bloodthirsty fence, and down the alley, ran home, and hid our separate ways, their voices dwindling back. "'Why don't you children grow?' one shrieked. "'Grow, and do it soon! You boys, you boys, you little girls!' the other yelled. "'Grow up!' Grow out, grow old. And so saying, there and then, the two of them made summer end. And at home, alone, in beds, in the darkness of our separate nights, eventually, we did, we did. We did. I've mentioned that once upon a brief time, I was a semi-renowned bar poet at the rich bar poetry scene of Chicago. I was writing a novel set in the 1950s, a coming-of-age thing, dealing with kids and their games and how the games begin to deepen, to turn real as they approach dawning adulthood. Well, that's more there and then than here and now. But I began to write poetry as a tool to focus my writing. Almost everything I wrote was story poetry. The Curse is one of those. Uh, the kids are old chums. Terry Hebhart, Dave Brown, Cliffy Mahler, Missy and Trissy Fritz, others, and the witches, those who lived down the way, well, 
Well, every block in every city has a witch or two in the old house down the way, the peeling place, the place whose lawn draws then absorbs all, all form of ball and glider and kite. Those things a kid tosses from himself out into the world. Well, the place in the curse was ours, the alley was ours, the fences, walls, overhanging trees, ours. I don't know what happened to those antique ladies. I moved away a half-dozen years later, and later I grew up, later still grew old. I know they're still there. <laughs> They've got to be, right? Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you can remember your witches, your dragons. Okay, facts. How about some facts? A few weeks ago, in the Joe Lansdale episode, I believe it was, author and publisher Andy Remick began his series called Horror, Anarchy, and Doom. At the end, you might remember, he promised us a discussion of Stephen King's most recent book, The Massive 11-22-63. So, sit back, relax, here's... Andy. Hello and welcome to Horror, Anarchy and Doom, a horror podcast released through Tales to Terrify. My name is Andy Remick and I'm the author of 13 books published by Orbit Books, Angry Robot Books, Solaris Books, and my own publishing company, Anarchy Books. For those people who heard the last podcast, you'll be aware that I was about to begin reading Stephen King's latest novel, 112263. Well, I'd just like to report back that I'm about halfway through it at the moment, and it's absolutely fabulous, just uh, beautifully written, and the characterization is sublime. Now, Stephen King is obviously well-known and a self-confessed horror writer. What I found quite interesting was, I mean, 11.22.63, anyway, is not an overt horror novel. There are a few elements of dark murder in there, which could be construed as horror, but it's not, for example, in the same league as something like James Herbert's The Rats. I'm not sure if Stephen King set out to write a kind of mainstream novel, but it's just it's just so perfectly and beautifully written, and it's uh, a testament to how um, a good book needs to rely purely on story and brilliantly realised characters and clean, crisp prose. Now, it's definitely one of the fav my favourite books, one of the best books I've ever read. Stephen King is definitely a writer at the top of his game. So, eleven twenty two sixty three. 10 out of 10 from me, very much recommended. And if you email me with the um, with actually what happens at the end, I will shoot you. Now, looking at this book and reading this book and looking at quite a few different Stephen King novels that I've got, started to be thinking about book classifications. Now, for example, if we look at the back of Stephen King's cell, it's, he's no longer being classified as a horror novelist or this book isn't a horror novel. It's just purely classified as fiction. And that kind of got me to thinking about the, um, the state of the horror market and how you only have to go into any bookshop, those that are still open, of course, and look at the size of a, of a horror section. 
and I'm not talking about kind of teen vampire girls and all that kind of teen comedy vampire circuit. I'm talking about the kind of, you know, proper old school um, horror writers and how the, those sections of books have vastly reduced over previous years and how kind of doomsayers would proclaim and have us believe that this is the end of the horror market as we know it. I mean, I personally still very much enjoy horror. I always have done. I don't see myself per se as a horror novelist, although if you actually look at every single novel I've ever written, there are massive elements of horror in there. Everything from my first three novels, Spiral Quake and Warhead, which contained a hybrid creature, um, a genetic mutation called the Nex, a type of warrior that was a blend of man and insect. So there were, you know, very discreet horror um, references there. Through to the, I mean, the most recent fantasy novels I, I wrote, Kells Legend, Soul Stealers, and Vampire Warlords. I mean, there's a kind of vampire element, but it's been twisted out of all recognition. It's about a dark race of creatures who um, have clockwork integrated with their internals, and this needs to be fed and kept oiled by a distillation of blood oil. Now, th this need for blood oil to keep their internal mechanisms working um, has given them a need for blood and indeed has made them vampiric out of necessity. So there's that. I mean, the recent novels I've been working on, science fiction novels, all have dark elements of horror, sometimes black comedy. But, I mean, looking at kind of the way Stephen King, who is, like, obviously one of the best-selling novelists ever, and the, the need of his publishers to reclassify him as a fiction writer as opposed to horror. And it, it led me to contemplate how horror has survived and is surviving and is doing very, very well, but maybe that's because it's been more integrated into other genres. As I was saying, you know, I mean, I've written everything from thrillers, science fiction, fantasy, and yet I'm using horror in all those uh, different genres because, for me, if I want to make something horrific for the reader or if I want to put in elements of um, terror or try and instill fear in the reader, horror has got all the perfect ingredients for what is needed to create suspense and without using some of the mainstays of horror, I think that all the books I've written would be a lot weaker for it. I think one of the main reasons for horror, for so many books no longer being classified as horror, is because, well, purely because of sales and publishers not. Or publishers have seen a downturn in discrete horror sales, so they are... So they're no longer willing, really, just to put horror on the cover because you're instantly labelling a book. And I think maybe a lot of people, a lot of readers, um, turned away from horror. I don't know if there's a kind of almost global cynicism. People have been everywhere, seen everything, done everything. It takes a lot more to scare somebody. I mean, I remember a common phrase reiterated in pub conversations if we were discussing different genres and people would say to me how psychological horror, for example, or a lot of my friends find that more effective than overtly scary, in inverted commas, horror. But anyway, it's interesting to kind of think about why publishers label books and in what context books are attempting to be sold. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting that um, with King's latest book, somebody who was previously marketed as the master of horror and the greatest horror writer in the world, um, his book... Indeed, this hardback edition I've got hasn't even got a category on the cover anywhere. Um, so it's obviously marketed as mainstream fiction, and is indeed mainstream fiction, I suppose, to read. But then nearly every book I'm picking up at the moment, there are elements of horror in there. 
which in many ways just goes to highlight that horror is alive and kicking and strong and well. Okay, moving on. I've recently been kind of catching up on some of the horror movies I have missed in previous years and decided to have a look at the Human Centipede first sequence, which I'd heard several things about. I mean, it's quite a disgusting concept where a mad German doctor surgeon uh, decides to sew three people together mouth to anus and um, so as one defecates the other eats and the food goes through three digestive systems before coming out the other end which is just an absolutely disgusting and rank idea Um, now there's not that many horror films that really I consider to be scary this film whilst not necessarily scary I found it to be quite revolting obviously and um, I think it was a clever idea, clever concept, and where the mad scientist kidnaps the two um, American girls and also a uh, and a Japanese man, and he sells them all together in a disgusting, horrific operation. Um, I think I enjoyed the film. I found it quite disturbing and quite disgusting. It wasn't the sort of film that, for example, stops me taking the dog out for its nightly wee, but for me, what made the film good and indeed better than... I've just been looking on IMDb and it's, it's got quite a low rating. It's got a 4.7 out of 10, rated by 317 people. That's a lot of people who are giving it a low rating. But I think that Dr. Heiter um, was the actor who made it for me. I thought it was absolutely fabulous and portrayed the role of a seriously deranged ex-surgeon psychopath uh, beautifully. It's a film I'd recommend anyway, but I really wouldn't watch it on Valentine's Day with your girlfriend or wife. So I'd give it an 8 out of 10. That would be my rating for The Human Centipede. Now, somebody asked me the other day about the actual titling of this podcast. Why did you call it Horror, Anarchy and Doom? Well, when I was asked to do the podcast by Tony... Obviously, if the podcast is about horror, I had the word anarchy floating around my head quite a lot because of, number one, I've been writing a series of novels about anarchy androids, and I've also started up my own little publishing company, Anarchy Books. But the doom bit comes from an element which perhaps is not spoken about very much in horror circles, which is gaming, computer gaming, video games, and in particular, my old love of some of the old horror-based first-person shooters, such as the Doom and Quake games by ID Software. I thought it'd be interesting to maybe incorporate into this podcast some kind of comments and thoughts on the horror genre in video games. Now, most recently, uh, for Christmas, in fact, I received the games Rage by ID Software and Deus Ex Human Revolution which has got some excellent reviews. And although it's not distinctly and overtly a horror game, there's definitely elements of science fiction and it's a very dark and moody and atmospheric um, video game experience. So I'm going to have a look at those two games over the next week or two. And in the next podcast, I'll give you some feedback on what I thought of these current games. So being such a busy little monkey, I've not had much time recently to play any computer games. I suppose the last horror game I played was the absolutely fabulous Valve software title Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2, which basically sees a small squad of civilians turned hero um, and their quest to escape various zombie-infested environments. Got absolutely brilliant characterisation in terms of computer gaming anyway. And the games are a lot of fun to play. There's a lot of fast action. It's very much on 
scripted so that it's not like some of the linear games you play where you go down a corridor and at a set trigger point you get the same bad guy leaping out at you who needs to be taken out in the same way. The Left 4 Dead series of games are very much unscripted and that gives it every time you get massacred yourself by the zombies and you go back in for another game it's different so that every experience is different which makes a refreshing change okay i think that's my rambling over and done with for this issue anyway and so to finish then this is horror anarchy and doom a regular horror podcast by author Andy. this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive in june olive in june gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane it's also so easy to get salon worthy nails at home with olive in june the difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the manny system is a complete game changer the best thing about olive in june too is it's a quick dry dries in about one minute lasts for five days and full coverage in up to one to two coats visit oliveandjune.com slash perfect manny 20 for 20 percent off your first system that's oliveandjune.com slash perfect manny 20 for 20 percent off your first system Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Remick, that's me, and you can find out more about me if you really want to, which I'm pretty sure you don't. But anyway, my website address is www.andyremick.com. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Do, by the way, stop by Andy's site. It's got a lot going on in it. By the way, I finished 112263 about two weeks ago. It's the best thing King's written in years. Thanks for that, Andy. We're looking forward to more horror, more anarchy, and, hey, who can ever get enough doom? Our main fiction tonight is Sewn from Salt by Gemma Files, narrated by Jason Sanford. A few words. Gemma, born in London, has lived an entire life in Canada, Toronto. She comes from a theater family, graduated from Ryerson University with a degree in magazine journalism, then spent nearly a decade as a film critic. She's taught screenwriting, television series development, film history, Canadian film history. Her first professional sale was Mouthful of Pins to Don Hutchison for Northern Frights 2. She's published two collections of short fiction, 
Kissing Carrion and The Worm in Every Heart, both from Prime Books, and two chapbooks of poetry, Bent Under Night and Dust Radio. Her novel, A Book of Tongues, Volume 1 in the Hexlinger series, was published by Chaisine Publications in April 2010. It was followed by a sequel, A Rope of Thorns, in 2011, and Volume 3, A Tree of Bones, is due out this year. Jenna is married to fellow author Stephen J. Barringer. She says she's the least interesting person she knows, has a line from Flaubert tattooed on her arm. It is, Be neat and orderly in your life like a bourgeois, so that you may be violent and creative in your work. Well, Gemma's work is lovely, violent, and creative. And while she may not remember it, we met once in Denver or Providence, maybe Toronto. She probably does not remember me, but I do remember her. Well, maybe it was Seattle. Here is Sown from Salt. By Gemma Files. They made a desert there and called it peace. Tacitus. Reese woke after dawn, dew stiff with difficulty. So much blood had dried all over his face while he slept that his eyelashes were now almost too sticky to peel open. The hard Arizona sun pressed down on him. Aside from the song of flies, no other living creature seemed anywhere near. Though there did not seem to be too much to bother rousing himself for, he set up moments later nonetheless and nearly threw up. A terribly familiar pain monopolized the center of his chest, folding him up around itself like a half-screwed winch. Had he not known better, he might have thought the bullet in him still, lodged deep, a truly unlovely thing, harbinger of delirium and death. Yet neither of those was to be his portion any more, as he was well aware. There was a dead body laying almost next to him, one of several such leftovers from the latest trip to yet another town, fresh and not so alike, scattered where they fell after judgment, but he ignored it. Dead bodies were everywhere. This world was a butcher shop at the best of times, He'd have been far more surprised not to find one, there or elsewhere, on top of the earth or under it. Eventually he made his feet and stood there swaying, squinting upwards. He felt for his watch, popped it open, checked the time and reckoned which direction might be north accordingly. Left a bit where that dry ravine mouth hid the horizon, aided by scrubby bushes. Some hours hard walking to anything resembling civilization, probably, which alone argued for getting going. Yet he stood there a moment more, unsteady, wishing with all his considerable might that he could simply lie back down and sleep, this time without fear of waking. His mouth already too dry for spit, he drew a cambric handkerchief from one pocket and used it, fastidiously, to scrub his sticky lashes clean. His eyes burned. Grimly, he staggered forward. Never fully alone, even in this emptiest of places. As the sun moved overhead, shimmering mirages lit the corners of his eyes. Reese seemed to hear distant laughter. Footsteps behind and whinnying horses ahead. Even brief snatches of song. 
a plaintive hill-holler tune from Old Missouri, Mother of Outlaws, sung in the most easily recognizable of light baritones. point he fell, taking almost a whole half hour to rise again. Lay curled round his pain once more, cracked lips, fresh split, and sang the chorus back in a bare whisper, all the while, not even one quarter so effortlessly pretty. But that's not now, nor never will be, till the sweet apple grows on the sour apple tree. He had a man kept in his mind to go with that voice, same as always. First thing he'd seen before that dark crack between then and now first gaped wide, not to mention the only thing he'd remembered consistently since. Those mocking eyes finding his, full on, right before obscene pain tore his world apart in a spurt of gun smoke. They had looked at each other, and then he had been looking at the ground, and then he had been looking at nothing, and then... And then, after, much later, he had woken up once more, dew-stiff and cold on the hard desert ground, his heart apparently having been replaced by an open wound. With someone else's blood dried to a sticky mask all over his stupidly dumbfounded face. He rose back up, walked on, till the sun met the horizon, till everything went gold, and then red, then black. The next town he crossed over into, sometime after sunset, under a mean sprinkling of star, was so small he he somehow knew, as he always did these days, it only had one whore left working, and her kept so indifferently busy she often had to take in piecework to make ends meet. They'd had setbacks, obviously, almost since foundation, a virtual parade of ill luck with no apparent cause or cure forever conspiring to rob the place of reason for being. Hope of mining had first inspired settlers to congregate there, till the claims dried up. They'd then switched to raising livestock, sheep, pigs, cattle, horses, till various sicknesses forced those not bankrupted outright to cultivate a host of crops, all of which similarly came to nothing. Now there was intermittent talk of the railroad, which might or might not be drifting towards their territory. Jesus, too, had persisted strongly throughout all of the above. Camp meetings, revivals, the occasional church of some revelation or other, always raising itself up and flourishing briefly before falling again to ruin, though that in itself had never, as yet, proved much of a draw for attracting new citizenry. He passed the gutted shell of one such project on the town's westmost outskirt. Someone had propped a sign against its door lintel, done unpunctuated in shaky red letters of varying size. Many cry in trouble and are not heard, but to their salvation. St. Augustine, he said, out loud, 
recognizing the words as ones his former friend had once quoted him in time of particular moral quandary. For the man in question did love to read, and loved even better to let others know just how well-read he was. That struggle with his own impulses, let alone their shared actions, had been a passing one, he now recalled, easily overturned by sentiment, if not by argument, as ever. Because we've all done things we regret, I expect, his friend had loud, though both of them knew full well the other probably didn't think he had, to which he'd paused and considered, trying his level best to summon even one instance in which he genuinely questioned himself, replying, finally, I do wish I hadn't stayed my hand at Lincoln. His friend smiled at that narrowly. Didn't much from what I hear. Not too much, no. But whenever I did, I wish I hadn't. And did he feel differently now? Could he even tell how he felt, if indeed he felt anything at all? But here were the lights of what passed for a main street at last. Open doorways, noise, and music, faces peering out to greet him as he limped towards them in his dusty motley, his sticky, crimson finery. He aimed to at least reach that storefront which claimed a doctor resided within before he pitched over, face forward, to wait for them to decide what best to do with him. And this he was indeed able to achieve before darkness reclaimed him the never-quite-broken-off song rising, undimmed, in his ears, like blood, like tide. I wish I wish my love had died And set his spirit growing free So we might keep where But that's not now, nor never will be. Mister, mister, do you know where you are? A gruffer voice from some further distance off. Of course he don't, Doc. Don't even know his own name, I bet. How long do you think he's been walking? The Doc sighed. Couldn't rightly say, not without I question him directly. Help me shift him up on that table, will you? This last was followed by a vertiginous rush and roll of movement, balanced ineptly with a hand or two on every slack limb before he came crashing down again, his skull connecting table-topwards with a sick little crack. And, "'Not so hard!' the doc cried, fussily. "'You'll tear his scalp open, start him back to bleeding.' Then came the gruff voice once more, chiming back in. "'Someone in authority. "'Sheriff? Mayor? Or both?' saying... You sure that's all his blood, Doc? Because he don't look too sanguinated to me from where I sit. He didn't have to open his eyes to see the Doc's mouth crimp at that, unbelieving. Well, I suppose I don't quite take your meaning, Mr. Martin. For pity's sake, what else would it be likely to be? That's a question, all right, Martin murmured. When he did open his eyes some hours later... They came apart smoothly. Someone had finally run a hot cloth over his face, 
paying special attention to all those varying nooks and crannies where the blood had collected most deeply. He got up, still moving slowly. Didn't seem to move any other way these days. He remembered how his pulse had once run so hot, resting heartbeat faster than a grouse across level ground. In the pier glass above the wash basin, he saw his own pale visage blink back at him. Bushwhacker hair to below his shoulders, meticulously groomed in anticipation of whenever the South might rise again. Plus a narrow blonde beard and luxuriant mustachios, a pistolier musketeer, sandlight eyes under similarly bleached lashes, almost yellow from some angles. And, why, Sergeant, he thought, I never looked to see you here, down among the dead men and the drifting trash. Not without your dear companion to spur you along in any necessary endeavors, at any rate. Oh, but it was bitter, too, no matter how he might try to smile at it. The pain inside him felt abruptly greater than before, not that it ever grew small. So hollow from grief and hate and longing that it fair came off of him in waves, the way heat boils up from the veiny crust of some fallow field at noon. In that one dreadful moment, he at last knew himself little more than a husk set endlessly roaming this world, always in search of one who fled from him, as youth flees from youth, or shadow flees from light, and might well have wept at such terrible understanding had the desert not long since rendered him incapable. But now there was a knocking at the door, impatient for entry. He stood there, stock still, unable to hide his true nature any more. Spotting his gun slung over a chair by the bedstead, even as they kicked through, and knowing himself far too slow to reach them before they broke through their initial shock at seeing him laid thus bare, jumping forward all at once to take him down in a single, sprawling pile. Face on, Sheriff Martin proved as bluff and craggy a union bastard as any'd reached ever plugged through the brain pan or anywhere else. Martin held up a broadsheet, from which the same face he'd seen mirrored upstairs stared. Next to it, his friend quirked just the slightest of smiles, as though thinking it a fine irony that they meet again this way. "'Your name's Sartine Reese, same as says here?' Martin asked. "'Sartine, Standard Reese, yes. "'Folks call you one shot?' "'They do.' Martin's deputy, a clean-browed young man whose eyes were masked by little round lens spectacles, put in at that. You really at Lincoln, Reese? When I was fifteen, yes. And I guess you was at Be Welcome, too, Martin said. With Bart Hall? Yes. Uh-huh. So where's that some bitch now? Reese glanced down, head hung low, ridiculous hair falling between them like a shield, replied, carefully, fighting hard to keep any further tremor from his already shaky voice, which thankfully might be put down to him having been punched in both throat and belly during their earlier tussle. Don't rightly know. We had a fallen out. What happened? At this, Reese looked up again, grinning against the pain, and tapped his chest one time against the breastbone, neat and clean and hard, like knocking on a coffin's lid, saying, well, as to that, he shot me, Sheriff. Right about here. You see it? Where I'm pointing? Right through my goddamn heart. Martin stared at him straight in the eye, unimpressed by what he maybe took for mere rhetoric. 
So how are you alive then, Mr. Reese? Reese nodded, slightly. How am I? He repeated, without much emphasis, having already asked himself that same question on many an occasion by now, and never yet received any satisfactory answer. They beat on him some more for a while, after, before slinging him into a cell to wait on some judge they'd have to order from two towns over. The deputy, Jenkins, his name proved to be, sat there checking Reese's guns in front of him, stroking their chased silver hilts admiringly, and sighting down their long barrels at nothing in particular, before locking them safely away with the rest of the sheriff's ornaments. Wouldn't do that, I was you, Reese told him, carefully maneuvering one of his looser teeth around in its socket with his tongue tip. Jenkins frowned. Why not? Because unless you're planning on selling them, you probably don't want what comes along with them. They was at Lincoln, too, after all. Jenkins gave him a long, cool look. I heard some things about you and Hall. Did you now? Well, since I think I know what, I don't suppose it'll do either of us much good to discuss it any further. Still, would you say I merited hanging less or more, I wonder? You happened to find out they was true. There's some that would say more, Jenkins allowed, flushing slightly, but I ain't with them on that one, necessarily. Kind of you. I do merit it, though. Sure enough, for be welcome and elsewhere. Make no mistake about that. That shut Jenkins up, at least for a little bit. Must have been something he saw reflected in Reese's eyes under the lantern's uncertain light. They maintained silence together, oddly companionable, until he finally had to ask, Whose blood was that you had on you, Reese? Oh, somebody from around here's, I expect. Didn't you recognize it? Listen, Jenkins, you and yours seem good people, on the whole, from what I've seen. But there's always a reason I run across places, and you have been unlucky. So might be that's cause there's other people here, ones that's just like me. Jenkins, paling, I'd know if there was... Reese really did have to laugh then, torn mouth bleeding just a bit as he did, streaking his smile like rouge. Would you? How exactly? Saving the word of God. Men lie, Jenkins, even when they don't have anything to hide. So how much more you think they're prepared to do to cover true sin up, especially if they don't want to have to keep on running from its consequences? Which brought silence again, for a spell. Reese drank it in leaned his head back against the cell wall, and waited. As it turned out, the rest of the town folk didn't plan on putting anything off for simple lack of a judge. Instead, they came for Reese at midnight, with guns and torches, shouted Martin and Jenkins down, then hustled him back down Caltrack Avenue and hung him from a tree outside that same burnt church he'd passed on his way into town. They also proved inexpert enough at this particular form of semi-judicial murder that his neck failed to break on the drop, which meant he dangled there a while, tongue out and blackening, face a swell, some awful noise issuing forth from his throat like a half-swallowed rattlesnake, before Jenkins finally lunged forward and hauled at both his legs together till the crack of bone rang out at last. This last mercy loosed a flood of piss that ran down Reese's fine trousers to foul them from the crotch down, soiling dirt and deputy alike. As he thrashed, 
strangling. His gay shirt flew open in front, revealing to all and sundry the black miracle of his wound. That awful, fleshy advent calendar with only one day left celebrated, laid open like a little bone window so everyone in town could see the cold pink meat framed underneath its ragged hole, unbroken yet unbeating. He heard more than one woman or close-hugged child shriek out in terror at the sight. While many more than one man blasphemed in gutter language he recognized from Lincoln, Dodge City, be welcome itself. But then the penultimate buzz was in his ears, drowning out even that damn betraying song at long, long last. The owl, the owl is Then Reese was not, nor never would be, strung to rot like fruit from a gallows tree. But it wasn't the end, of course, never was. Not since he'd woken that first morning with blood in his eyes, his mouth, his hair, with an open wound where his shot through heart should be, and Brett Hawes' faithless name still curdled on his lips. By dawn on the third day, he was deep in unhallowed ground, sand and stones piled haphazardly atop to ward off coyotes. But the morning opened dark above his grave, only to grow steadily darker, a storm lowering constantly overhead, yet never breaking fully into much-needed rainfall, while ball and sheet lightning chased each other up and down the sullen, swollen sky. And just after sunset, once more, was when Reese came limping into town again, up the main street to Martin's office, covered in the same dirt and piss they'd buried him wearing, his tongue black-tinged yet in a still-torn mouth, when he opened it to wish Sheriff Martin and Deputy Jenkins alike a raspy, "'Good evening, gentlemen.' Martin gaped. "'Sweet King Christ Jesus, one shot, Reese.' "'That'd be a no to the first, yes to the second. Reese replied, with all the bleak coolness of his condition.' adding to Jenkins. Now, I'd much appreciate having my guns back, deputy, if you don't mind. They were a gift, you see. And the plain truth is I'm sentimental about such things. Jenkins nodded a tad at this, as though he quite took Reese's point. But Martin drew his own sidearm instead, aiming it straight at Reese's midsection, blustering. You can just go right on back to hell and stay there this time, you damn murdering secesh! Reese shook his head, dusty gold hair flapping a bit with the gathering wind. I believe there's some following behind me. May want a few words with you, Sheriff, on that very same subject. He said it gently, though, perhaps too much so, for under cover of that howl din which suddenly rose up all around them, a great chorus of disembodied plaint knit to a hundred skittering shadows. Reese's warning seemed almost entirely lost on Martin, whose eyes grew wide and crazed. Even as Jenkins turned to inquire if he was all right, the sheriff found himself abruptly surrounded by nothing and borne away in some phantom twister of screams, kicking and yelling, bound for order of black country Reese had already left behind. Now it was Jenkins' turn to freeze, face slack and wondering. 
for all over the rest of town, similar harsh magic was being worked. A new-made widow far too infatuate with her state over here. A rival whose dispute had been settled through apparent chance over there. One veteran who boasted, another who did not. Those with unsupported claims to their pasts, as well as those who never spoke of what had brought them there at all. Interestingly, almost none of Reese's own lynch gang were to be counted among the judged, save for one or two Jenkins knew had once delivered other similarly rough instances of frontier justice. Reese, who had seen this same drama played out many times previously in many different places, ignored it all, strolling past Jenkins into the sheriff's vacant office, where he broke the weapons cabinet lock with Martin's empty desk chair. As he walked back out, adjusting his holsters down low on his hips, he found Jenkins there to meet him, and paused, courteously, barely flinching, to let the deputy bury a few slugs in his gut, the very least he could offer as recompense for the night's awfulness. Nothing poured from the wounds except for a few slack streams of sand and reddish dust admixed. Reese peered at Jenkins, frozen once more, some vague semblance of sympathy in his yellow eyes. Feel better, he asked. Jenkins swallowed. Why him? Why not me? Well, he had blood on him too, I expect. You don't. Not yet, anyway. Better look to keep it that way in the future, don't you think? He left Jenkins standing there. Probably the town's best choice for a new sheriff, now and made off, without much haste, down that muddy cart route, which might never quite pass for a true main thoroughfare, while dark tides of vengeance eddied back and forth all around him, leaving few but him, their harbinger, their slave, untouched. Musing as he did on how Bart Hall, always overproud of his Eastern University learning, had once read from Bullfinch's mythology the tale of King Cadmus, who killed the dragon guarding the river outside Thebes to be knocked out all of its teeth and sowed them in the nearby fields like seed, like salt. Then stood there astounded when men came up instead of crops, all over armor, and did what men in armor do best. Amusing once, now the story was only bitter true. He knew himself a walking dragon's tooth, sent to lie in other folks' earth a while, and see what might rise up along with him afterwards. And yet... Even supposing some variety of judgment, divine or otherwise, drove what he did, he could never count what he brought along with him as vengeance, not even for whatever the people there might wreak on him beforehand. As he told Jenkins, that was only what he deserved. If he were to be hung in every town from here to Missouri, it still might not be enough to wash him clean of everything he'd done. On reaching the westernmost border of town, Reese paused again, craning his neck to the sky, and cried out to no one in particular, There! Am I done yet? Can I stop? Silence only. The lightnings flash. Clouds aboil like lava. Reese felt it twist in him, knife-like, till he could not restrain his next demand, torn cold and bloody from the dry hole where his perforated heart should keep time still, unbreached, screamed up at those hidden, condemning stars till his throat fair cracked. Look, just where in the hell is he, goddammit? 
so I know which way to go, at least. You want me to keep on working your wheel much longer. You surely need to tell me right damn now. But nothing replied, as he'd come to expect, save for the thunder, which cracked the vault above him open, wide, to loose the promised torrent. A scarlet, sticky rain, warm and salt, which fell only on him, soaking him from tip to toe with the leavings of his own sin, covering him completely, erasing all he was or might have been. An answer of sorts, long expected, bitter in his torn mouth, on his blackened tongue. So Sartain Stannard Reese bowed his proud bushwhacker head to the wind of comeuperance, and prepared to walk until he fell, knowing that by the time the sun rose he would wake yet again, dew-stiff and cold, crusted all over with blood, not his own, that he would seek his friend, turned enemy, Bart Hall eternally and never find him, for vengeance, once that most satisfactory of all commodities, was no longer his to administer. Not now, not never. He set his raw feet to the desert's hard road, therefore, that same song dinning ceaseless in his ears, and let darkness take him, praying that this time, this time, of innumerable other occasions, it would not be so unkind as to even play at letting him go once more. Thanks again, Gemma. You just have to love post-Civil War creepiness, don't you? I hope to have you back again, and soon. You can see her smile at the Gemma Files webpage. Just click on the link. We've been lucky here at Tales to Terrify. We've had quite a few stories read to us by writers. Who better than one author, for example, to body forth the work of another writer? Hmm? This especially if he or she isn't afraid of the mic and, of course, not afraid of stepping into another person's skin for a time. Yeah. Sometimes that's even better than having the writer read his or her own work. Uh, Speaking from experience, I know sometimes I'm the last person to know what I've written. Well, that's, that's probably just me. Now... Jason Sanford, who's just read Sewn from Salt, is an author, a good one. He writes short stories, essays, and articles. He's an active member of CEFWA, the Science Fiction Writers Association. He's been a finalist for the Nebula Award for Best Novel. He won both the 2008 and 2009 Interzone Reader's Poll and was co-winner of it in 2010. He's been published in Interzone, Year's Best SF, Analog, Tales of the Unanticipated, the Mississippi Review, Diagram, Pindalibaz, and others. Thanks, Jason. Great work tonight. Hope you'll be stopping by again. And that is it. I ask you again to go to the website. If you're listening to this on a download, go click on Donate. We can always use some help in that way. And otherwise, keep listening. Keep telling your friends about us. We'll be here every week. And you can always listen to past articles. And don't forget to stop by the Starship Sofa sometime. That's another great place. 
So that's it for now. You're going to have to wrap up, bungle forth into the howl and the stinging ice out there. That's all right. It's not too far to go, and the streets are quiet now. Have a good walk. It'll do you good. And we'll see you next week. Pleasant dreams? Hmm? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.